0: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Prairie Film Companion. This is episode 3.5. I'm your humble host, Gerard O. Ramos. Thank you for joining us today. Today's film will be a look at David Lean's Brief Encounter, filmed and released in 1945. We must pardon this horrible british accent i'm affecting but i thought it appropriate to get it in the mood to get us there in the mindset of fine uk refinement and what it has to say to us through the ages but for now let us enjoy this beautiful music by rashmaninoff a bit more Of sophistication the height of UK excellence that is Sergei Rashmaninov concert number two for piano and orchestra okay sorry enough for the voice now again I start with the great track here not only because it's powerful in the film and it's beautiful in its own right It uh, has some familiarity to it. And if you've heard um, a much more recent song, that is Celine Dion's All By Myself, you may think, hey, I've actually heard that before. So before we dive into anything, I wanted to just bring up the comparison for maybe something that we'll touch base on a little later on. So, as I mentioned... This is what that classic orpe- orchestral piece does sort of sound like. Take a listen. To be
1: sure. Sometimes I feel so insecure, and love so distant and obscure remains, remains the, cure. the
0: cure. Right here. Okay, so if we take a listen to that descending piece, sounds hauntingly familiar to what we see in Rashmaninoff's piece, which I'll just go back to for a slight moment once again. I don't have a grand point to that. It is a bit more of an interesting anomaly, if anything. I, I'm sure Celine Dion's song takes a lot of inspiration from that classical piece and maybe even just directly samples it. But I think a point that I have to bring up will come out a little bit later. So, moving right along to the meat of the film, if you will. Um, Brief Encounter by David Lean. This was a film suggested from a dear friend of mine, Dante. Shout out to you. I had not seen this particular David Lean film. David Lean, of course, well known for making such gigantic films as Dr. Zhivago, Lawrence of Arabia, The Bridge Over River Kwai, The Greatest Ever Story, Story Ever Told, and so on and so forth. So his pedigree in terms of uh, film canon if you will classic films that are of great large importance are noted um i've heard about this film throughout the days and it was always a curiosity to me because it didn't seem as grand and epic as those other films um what's great about those other big david lean films is that even though they're this sweeping epic The personal stories are so uh, poignant and delicately handled. Um, You can really care for and fall in love with these characters. It doesn't feel forced. It doesn't feel like an action-packed movie that needs a human core. It feels like the human experience and its struggles is always at the forefront and handled very, very beautifully. And digging into this film, Brief Encounter, we get that in spades and maybe even in its most potent form. Um, What and how that is exemplified is a a bit through the sound design, um, a lot through lighting and camera work, and just an incredibly solid written story about these two individuals who are on the cusp of cheating on their own partners as they meet by happenstance one day. So um, the first kind of bit I wanted to get into was about sound and how we start to see that early on in the film, how it forms kind of what our experience will be and what it says about each character. Um, I want to go into a little bit here around the uh about the six minute mark so early art into the film we get a hint of this trope of a train um now there's probably tons of symbolism here a train passing through the station this um very transient uh temporary mode of transportation kind of going through life it is uh at once a metaphor for that the the movement and transience of life, but um, also the sound design becomes very important. Uh, let's take a listen now at what I think is a very important first note in the sound design of this film.
1: By the time I got home, it was battered to bits. Oh, is that our train? Can you tell me? Is that the Ketchworth train? No, it's the express, the boat oh. train. Oh, of course, that doesn't stop, does it? I want some chocolate, please. Milk or plain? Uh, plain, I think. Or, no, perhaps milk would be nicer. Have you any with nuts in it? Nestle's not milk, shelling or sixpence. I think one plate, one plate. Large or small? Large. Ooh. Where is she?
0: And we'll cut there. I guess it probably would have been... Really nice to have some context for what that scene was. In short, the main protagonist, the woman who I foolishly don't have a name for, Well, I'll look that up very quick, um, she is sitting at a cafe speaking with an older friend of hers who she doesn't seem too excited to be in the presence of. Uh, as we start to hear the sound of this train in the distance become closer, the... A friend goes and gets them tea. And by the time the height of that sound has drowned out the conversation we're listening to, the woman turns back and our protagonist has left. And that's the last bit we heard. Where has she gone? Now, we don't have too much of a context. We are kind of dropped into the beginning. Well, what we'll see is the end of this story here. And it creates this beautiful kind of cyclic um rounded package that we'll get. And so um yes, just about that, that specific sound, the screeching sound of the train. Again, we'll see it becomes very important, but even in the context of this scene, it's quite noisy and brash. It it not only speaks to this woman's personality of being this brash in your face, nonstop talking presence, um and as we take in the scene, it could seem that we ju- that the protagonist just wants to get away from this. She doesn't like the conversation. She has other things in her mind, and she needs to go away. Which is an interesting way to start, giving us a certain amount of information, but not everything. So that it kind of can build um, to a moment at the end. And actually, I wanted to kind of take a little sidestep here. Um, That notion of building towards a payoff, building towards not only an emotional release, but a story payoff, um, I feel is really refined in these older films. Um, Again, this film being black and white, 1945. I think first off, just... As a fun thought, it's just wild to think, wow, this film was made back then and is being watched even now. But more than that, you get the sense of of this craft, of this care put into the film. Maybe, of course, from a script level, how the story begins, progresses, and ends but also how it was shot, and again, as we're talking about now, the sound design. And, I mean, a lot can be said here in that, oh, modern film doesn't care as much to put these payoff moments here. Um, I'm sure you could argue the opposite, but I bring it up to say that I feel this moment in time is quite a refinement of that. And maybe in a bit, a conversation about the black and white and our own reaction, looking back to it is worthwhile, but I'll save that maybe towards the end here. I want to kind of hop back into the sound design and these moments that kind of start to crystallize into something a little more important. And so moving forward. Just a few moments later, we're starting to get the sense that this woman is going through something deeply troubling. We don't know what. Um, She has now boarded the train with her friend that she has run into, but we can tell that she doesn't like to be confined in that space. It's this trap of, I want to have space to process these emotions and feelings, and I don't need to hear you speaking. And so in this moment on the train, um, we get one of the most beautiful moments of um, camera movement and cinematography. Um, now, when I say cinematography, I kind of want to just break that down really quick. I know it can sound like a very lofty and heady name uh, and word, but for those who aren't as familiar, uh, cinematography is simply the expression of and the realization of the director's vision. So if we are to look at the role of a cinematographer, that is the person behind the image, possibly the camera, um, their role is simply to create the vision that the director has in mind and make that a reality. So when I say that, the cinematography, that can encompass many things, the lighting, the camera movement, the camera placement, um, I thought it was valuable to at least break that down a bit, just to understand what we'll be going into here in a moment. So this first moment that is very important in terms of cinematography comes at about the eight-minute mark. And I want to play this as well. And I'll kind of talk as it plays. Almost like a... uh, um, Yeah, I'll talk as it plays to kind of just help elucidate it a bit. And here we go. Not very long.
1: I hardly know him at all, really. <laughs> Well, my dear, I've always had a passion for doctors. I can well understand how it is that women get neurotic. Of course, so
0: talking about their friend. I, I could trust you. And then there's this inner dialogue. I
1: wish you were a wise, kind friend. That
0: just comes softly.
1: Instead of a gossiping acquaintance I've known casually for years and never particularly cared for.
0: And it's so honest.
1: I wish. I wish. Fancy him going all the way to Africa. Is he mad?
0: I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish you were a better friend and can listen to me in this moment because I'm going through it. Now, the camera there pushes in ever so slightly. It's this really wonderful wandering in. It's so soft and delicate, barely perceptible until you're about halfway through the movement. You can really start to sense it. And what it does is you're bringing the audience, the viewer, you're getting brought into this emotion, this private moment, which in the context of the film is a voiceover. We hear, I wish, I wish you were a better friend and we're drawn in slowly. That whole effect, everything there, the choice to move in, I feel is super important, um, of course, not only to future moments as we'll bring up, but the Kind of care and delicate nature of filmmaking that David Lean and you know, his cinematographer and the crew have chosen to approach. Um, there's many other ways that you could go about this. It could be um, imagine this same moment if it was still. Um, let's say the audio of the passenger drowns out and we still hear her voiceover. We still get that insight but it doesn't have the same gravity as if you're slowly leaning in to take a listen to what she has to say. One other thing I'll note here is that the specific angle that we see our protagonist, who, pardon me for one second, I'm gonna get her proper name just so I don't butcher this. Okay, so it is Celia Johnson. Well, pardon, that's the actress's name in the context of the film. Her name is Laura Jessen, Laura. Okay, so yes, um, back to this little push-in moment. We see the ease of the push-in and the effect we get is this creeping in, creeping into this private thought Let me pause there, hold on, I lost myself. Yes, the last thing I wanted to bring up about this specific scene is that its specific angle, it's a a little higher than just a straight on camera. We're kind of looking down on her a little bit and it's about off center. So in terms of a camera angle, probably be coming down from something like this. now. Again, this I feel, this specific angle, feels like a shot that is commonly used in this era. I'm going to say very broadly and probably very incorrectly, black and white, 40s, 50s. We start to see this a lot. We actually see this quite a bit in Hitchcock. I actually used to call it the Hitchcock shot, but I don't think it was him who used it um, at the start to say. But... It was such a beautiful trend in this time of film. And what I feel it says is that it is a different vantage point. It is a different insight into the person you're looking at. It's a different insight into the person you're looking at. And it's special. Well, Rarely would you be looking at somebody at that angle unless they're sitting below you. But we jump up to it just to kind of get this special moment. Now again, this is something we'll see um, used to great effect later on, Um, the push-ins, the angle, and we'll get to why I feel that's important for this film. Now fast forward a bit, and we are at her house as she gets home. Uh, She returns home to her husband, to her children who have decided to wait up for her, And as we look at the setting of the bedroom of the children, even a lot of the interior of the house and the living room, um, yes, it is at nighttime, but a lot of the light either coming into the house or being bounced around the house is quite noir-ish. And what I mean by that is that the shadows are very pronounced. They're very long. Uh, They can even be a little scary. and. That is typically something used in noir film to great effect. I don't want to dive too much deeper into that here. All of that to say that the lighting in the house gives us this sense of a fear, of, uh, of a dread. Um, she doesn't look forward to coming back to her house, even though it is her husband, her children, um, her house, as she says. Um, I thought it was interesting, worth highlighting um, around the 12 o'clock mark, pardon me, 12 minute mark, she starts All to right, pour coffee in plan. their house.
1: is or pantomime? Neither. We'll thrash them both soundly, lock them up in the attic, and go to the pictures by ourselves.
0: And I just thought it was the most interesting coffee dispenser I've ever seen. It is uh, this single handle, almost like reaching out to hold kind of like what looks like a a scientific flask, if you will. And the coffee is there and heated under this other contraption. and She's just pouring it out. I bring that up um, because I think it's actually important to what we see in the frame here. Um, We're sitting, uh, again, at about 12 minute mark, we're seeing a two shot of them uh, in their house at the table with all of their very fancy and shiny accoutrements. Um, everything around them feels like it's of worth and value. Um, everything from the drapes to the desks and the ornaments on the, uh, on the fire sill. And uh, to me, all of this is a big sign of refinement of, um, of, a, of a higher posh lifestyle, if you will. Um, it's, to me, signifying what the kind of standard goal of a UK... Um, marriage in existence would be at this time. Um, And that, I feel, again, is important. Don't want to dig too deep into that yet. We'll probably, again, leave that to the end. But worth noting that her own house is this very ornate, refined um, space, kind of like they are, not only with their own attire, but with the way they speak, the way they carry themselves, their uprightness. And I feel it's all important to her inner world and the thoughts and emotions that she's going to. Now fast forward a tiny bit here. Just about the 15 minute mark, that is 15 and 25 seconds, we get another very interesting insight. It is a similar camera movement um, what's funny is that we're actually on the opposite side of her, of her body, um, than we were in the first time. And again, we get this similar easy push-in, moving closer towards her. And let's just take a listen to what those emotions are like in this moment. Oh, I guess, yes. little context. She's sitting in a living room with her husband. She's just put on some music. The music is kind of bringing her back to this emotional space, which she's about to have an inner dialogue about. Her husband is busy with his crossword puzzle. She has begun knitting, but this emotional space kind of dawns on her, and she has this little soliloquy. Let's listen in. Fred, Fred, wow.
1: Dear Fred, there's so much that I want to say to you.
0: Amazing facial you're the only expression. anyone in
1: the world with enough wisdom and gentleness to understand? If only it was somebody else's story and not mine.
0: The camera's easing in.
1: As it is, you're the only one in the world so that I can never, never, never. Because even if I waited until we were old, old people, and told you then. You'll be bound to look back over the years and be hurt. And don't my dear, I don't want you to be hurt. You see?
0: And so in that tiny moment, again we get this extremely honest inner dialogue. Fred, Fred, I wish I could tell you what's going on in my heart. I wish I could tell you what I have just been through. But you seem like you don't even care. That is what we get. And the whole time, the camera just eases in so slightly, very delicately, into this very tender and special moment. Where else would we get this woman's thoughts? And again, we start to see this, the movement, the sound, the drowning out of the environment around us to get into her thoughts, a very beautiful and precise way to get into those special inner thoughts. And so we start to move into her exploration of how this um, extramarital relationship started to bud. Um, and that's when we start to really realize, okay, this is another man has her vexed. Another man um, is, is, uh, is in her life now, even if uh, in, a, in a kind of a smaller way or role. Um, She's met somebody. Um, And her explanation of it and her exploration of how that came to be was very, very commonplace. As she goes on to describe, it is simply at a station in passing in their commute. Think about the number of people you would pass on your own commute if you were to take public transit. And just happen to spark a conversation that could lead to Uh, something where you would be tied to somebody. Again, it doesn't seem like it's something that you would be uh, rapturously captivated by. And that's probably one note I have against the film. Not that it is a bad thing, but the love story side of it, that is how these two people from different lives came into contact is not necessarily extravagant. It is not utterly romantic. It is not love at first sight, so to speak. It is not what I guess you could call a very simply and crudely put a Hollywood love affair. But it is just this normal, everyday, passing conversation. Um, why I think that's important is I think it's important that the tone is set, that it is Every day in happenstance, uh, because it is again touching based on the honesty um, and the genuine, the genuine exploration of these people. For whatever reasons, they make a connection away from their marriages, and decide to explore that. Why I think it's important that it's every day is that it is not meant to be discriminatory by that I mean to say that it is not meant to condemn these people Uh, also it does not mean that it condones them it is creating a safe space where both can be understood we understand as society looking on watching this film oh she has a duty to her family her husband And in seeking something outside of that, she is breaking said duty. Maybe duty is too crass of a word, but there is a a commitment that she has made instead. And much the same on his end, he realizes that getting to spend more time with this person is also a transgression of that same commitment. Yet nonetheless, they decide to see each other a little more regularly. Um, at first it's just in passing they meet each other at the same coffee shop and they decide to continue to meet up every thursday again just a normal thursday gonna see the same person that i saw so they go for lunch they make it regular and we can start to see the simple emotions develop Again, not extravagant, not big or grand, but through the small things in life, we start to see them. Make a connection at a moment at a lunch. You can see that the way the way that he speaks, and pardon, let me get the names right here. God, um, the way Alec speaks, Doctor Alec speaks about his vacation. About helping others and the way he gets excited and and moves and and, uh, and, and is just intrigued by his by the work that he does, uh, we can see her start to fall in love with that, start to be very excited. Um, it's interesting we don't even know what her own husband does, really. I don't think that's ever brought up or alluded to or mentioned. Um, But nonetheless, there are these small qualities she starts to see that perhaps are missing or were once there and now gone from her own husband. And in an implicit way, she starts to become attracted to those, hence why she would want to agree to seeing her on a Thursday. Pardon, seeing him on a Thursday with regularity. Now, again, the film does a great job of taking us through the journey of understanding how this sort of extramarital affair could happen on a very simple weekly basis. Uh, Again, we get kind of this insight and this understanding. At first, it doesn't even seem like a big transgression. Oh, she's having lunch with somebody that... um, is along her commuting way, and um, there's not much more than conversation there. Um, And what's interesting is that I don't even feel that there's a particular moment where that shifts into something more dramatic, something more palpable in terms of their love for each other. Um, There's a great moment of reflection, and this is at about the 40... 49 minute mark where she is boarding her train after having spent another day with him and she's just brought into this world of fantasizing and uh, her emotions and kind of reliving this like youthful love Um, and it's just interesting to hear her insights and and uh, create this fantasy. Um, and this moment is important, not only for what she says and how she expresses it, but also how we see it visually. And I'll break that down after we take a listener right here.
1: And when I got into the train, I didn't even pretend to read. I didn't care whether people were looking at me or not. I had to think. I should have been utterly wretched and ashamed. I know I should, but I wasn't.
0: So we're seeing know, her I, I, why, in okay, a train I, looking out the window. Like but We also see her figure, reflection.
1: Like a romantic fool
0: you see we see the said he loved me, the city pass her by
1: she's looking out and it was fondly it was true i imagine him holding me in his arms i imagine being with him in all sorts of glamorous circumstances it was one of those absurd fantasies just like one has when one is a girl being wooed and married by the ideal of one's dreams I stared out of that railway carriage window into the dark. And the camera pushes the in slowly now.
0: And what's interesting and worth Control noting here th- is that we're still in the same shot. We've stayed with her. Nothing has changed. But we're moving into the reflection. That is, the camera is doing the ease-in, not to her, but to the reflection. And as we start to lose sight of her in the frame and just focus on the reflection, we get a beautiful transition to these Overlays and exposures of her visual fantasizing of what this um, relationship can become.
1: So Alec and me, Alec and me, perhaps a little younger than we are now, but just as much in love and with nothing in the way.
0: And so we see them dancing in this ballroom.
1: I saw us in Paris, in a box at the opera. The orchestra was tuning up. Then we were in Venice, drifting along the Grand Canal in a gondola with the sound of mandolins coming to us over the water. I saw us traveling far away together, all the places I've always longed to go. I saw us leaning on the rail of a ship, looking at the sea and the stars standing on a tropical beach in the moonlight with the palm trees sighing above us then the palm trees changed into those polluted willows by the canal just before the level crossing
0: and we start to ease North back out of this fantasy dream
1: and i got out at with
0: and a bit of the reality sits in for her but we get this wonderful moment that is almost all in one continuous shot with of course the kind of special effects of the overlays of her fantasies. But what's interesting to note is that we focused in on the reflection of her, this other person, if you will, this different woman. She's not only looking right out the window, but us as viewers are looking at this different person start to materialize. And that is noted through the reflection. I bring that up because there is Another very important moment just follows this scene. After she's gotten out of the train, she's in her home, and she's sitting down at her vanity that is, her mirror with all of her makeup and hairbrushes and such, and she's brushing her hair.
1: I don't suppose you do, but I do. You see, you didn't know that that was the first time in our life together that I'd ever lied to you. It started then.
0: And the soliloquy is still directed to Fred, her husband.
1: Guiltiness. But the
0: our focus here,
1: Good evening, Mrs.
0: our focus here is on the mirror. We see a bit of the back of her on the right side of the frame, but our focus here is on the woman that she is in the mirror. Now, who comes into the scene as she's, as he says, "Good evening, Mrs. Jessen," is her husband. Um, but this is all fascinating. She's having this inner dialogue of herself uh, with her experiences um, and again even addressing her husband outright and he comes in to this frame and she's obviously very uh befuddled uh, because she feels herself becoming the woman in this image this other woman who desires something different that her husband does not offer her and I found that the Simple visual element, you know, using the reflections in the train and even the reflections more directly in the mirror, which, by the way, is a much more, you know, direct and accurate representation of the person. It's not as obscured as like the train reflection would be. And so we've gotten a sense. We've gotten a bit of a sense that. That. Um there is a transformation that has happened her feelings are now shifting away from her husband and more focused on this new man and this new love that she is feeling and we get a hint of that here in this scene as it plays out in front of the mirror let's listen in
1: hello dear had a good day it's lovely what'd you do well, I shopped and had lunch and went to the pictures. All oh, by yourself? Yes. Uh, no, not exactly. <laughs> what do you mean, not exactly? Well, I went to the pictures by myself, but I had lunch with Mary Norton. She couldn't come to the pictures with me because she had to go and see her in laws. They lived the just outside lie. Milford, you know. So I walked with her to the bus and then came home on my own. Haven't seen Mary Norton for ages. How's she looking? Well, very well, really. A little fatter, I thought. Hurry up with all this beautifying. I want my dinner. Are you going down? I wrote me
0: five minutes. And the lie was just so easy. And as her husband walks out the door, she is horrified. And we're still looking at her through the mirror. But she is stunned at this new person she's become. How easy it was to lie to her husband about her day um, and the time that she'd spent with this other man, uh, replacing him with other people tangential in her life and it's just a very interesting moment with simple camera work and placement we get this great sense of this person becoming someone else and I I just think that that's super powerful I think that's something worth keeping in mind as we head towards the end of the film here. and so the relationship progresses and there comes a very pivotal point where he invites her to his friend's apartment to spend the evening. Of course, the implication being that they'll uh, share an intimate night and solidify this love that they've been feeling for each other. Um, This starts to happen about the... Well, it looks like it's about the one hour mark. And the lighting has become very different from every other moment that they had previously. When we see them together, it is the daytime. It is in a restaurant. It is in the cafe. And again, it's all quite properly lit. Nothing is too dramatic or exaggerated. Um, and it speaks to the kind of soft interaction that they're having with each other. Um, They're in the daylight, but everything looks rosy and fine. Whereas as we come to this pivotal moment, we're now at nighttime. And he makes the suggestion to her, um, not only at night, but under a bridge, it seems. Um, And the lighting is much more dramatic. The lighting, again, actually harkens back to what we saw at the beginning with her entering her house at night. And it becoming very uh, dark and uh, and with uh, exaggerated shadows. Um, Anyways, there's this decision that must be made in the dark now. Does she go back with her new lover to solidify what they both know? Or does she still have in her heart the commitment to her original family? And so we see them discuss this at night, and it's just this dark, um, very even like horrifying decision she has to make, which again, exemplified by the lighting.
1: Back where? To Stephen's flat. Oh, really?
0: We hear the sound coming back from the trains. Now again, if we pause there, here we've had many elements kind of coalesce and uh, come to this very uh, climactic decision, if you will. Um, We have the sound design creep in. We've had the relationship. Um, The lighting now speaks to the gravity and the danger and the fear behind this decision. She decides not to initially, She heads back to the cafe, awaits her train, and in a last-minute decision, decides to go back. She gets off of her own train and goes back to the apartment. As she's back at the apartment, Alex's friend comes back early and unexpectedly and almost catches them. He catches them, and he is, in his very British, polite manner, very disappointed in his friend, asks for his key back, and leaves a very somber and sour tone as to the, what the whole situation was.
1: I'm just going well. I'll collect my hat and coat. Goodbye. Perhaps you let me have my latchkey back. I only have two, and I'm so afraid of losing them. You'll know how absent-minded I am. You're very angry, aren't you? No, Alec, not angry. Just disappointed.
0: Now, only the Brits can convey such <laughs> anger and hatred with such polite form. Again, I, I think it is um, a way of describing this uh, formal, elegant, refined presence, but exploring. What's underneath that? And to that point, we kind of reach our culminating moment. She's now run away from the apartment, supposedly heading back to the station, but wanders throughout the city for a bit. Alec is in pursuit of her. As she goes back to the coffee house, she finds him one last time. And The final scene I'd like to bring attention to, um, in my mind, is the culmination of the film. Um, And it is brought in fairly brilliantly as it kind of creates and finishes the loop of what we experienced at the beginning. Now, we had experienced the sound of the screeching train coming through the station as this woman was in a conversation she didn't want to be in, and she leaves. Um, And about at the 1 hour and 23 minute mark, we get the resolution of that. I just wanted to play that out a bit and describe it. Um, So in the context here, she is listening to Alex train leave. Um, And at the same moment, almost listening to the last she'll ever know of him. Uh, They've decided to part ways. And she's still warring and wrestling with that. And so uh, we listen into this very critical final moment.
1: Is that the train? Oh, can you tell me? Is that the Ketchworth train? No, it's the express, the boat train. Of course, that doesn't stop, does it? I want some chocolate, please. Milk and
0: We start to ease in on her, and as we do, the camera starts tilting, and shifting as this sound gets louder. And it is this haunting experience as she bursts out of the door and as she steps close to the track the train narrowly passes her. The camera eases back from this canted angle towards something more flat to something more poised. Now the implication here is that she was ready to take her life. She was ready to jump in front of the train and do away with all of this war of emotions and feelings. But something within her stopped. And this is the interesting part of where it co- connects back to the beginning. We, in the beginning, we stayed with them on the inside of the cafe. But here at the end, we're on the outside with her. Why I feel that's important is that even in that one moment at the beginning we're we're outside of her thoughts and feelings, but through this whole journey of the film, we've been brought into those very intimate thoughts and feelings, again, replicated through the sound design, in part, the music, the lighting, and also the camera movement. And What I feel is we've gained this sensitivity to her. We're with her. We're literally physically with her in this very dire moment. And again, I I, I still don't get the sense that it's of a condemning nature. That it's her dealing with something that's right or wrong, but just her trying to process these emotions that she's found herself going into. And that right there, I feel, is David Lean's best quality in terms of being a filmmaker and caring about these characters who, whose lives, well, whose lives what do they matter in black and white? What do they matter? Why, why is it worth looking at a film in 1945? Now, I imagine that at the time of this film's release, it might have been extremely controversial to look at a subject of a woman battling with the desires for another man outside of her marriage. It was probably very much something not addressed, um, and maybe even to the point of all this in the British society. But even beyond all of that, I think the masterful craft of David Lean and this film is that you gain a sensitivity to her experience you may not agree with the decisions she made um, how simple it was for her to just fall in love with this other man and we don't even fully understand why she would reach out to do so but we've gained a bit of sensitivity if not understanding we've gained We've come alongside her. We've come alongside her. And the final shot we see before the credits roll is an easy push in where she has been on her couch reflecting and thinking about how she fell in love. And her husband comes over to her. And again, the camera is pushing and easing in as he does. And as he tries to understand what she's going through, which isn't really 100% sensitive to the exact thoughts and feelings she's going through, the camera movement describes what we have gone through. Now we are alongside her, even if we don't know her well, even if we don't know everything that is vexing her, we are alongside her, comforting her, saying it's okay. And these are the final words that they speak to each other. Thank you for coming back to me. (sighs) Thank you for coming back to me. The husband doesn't know he's none the wiser. But he still says thank you for coming back. And they end in an embrace. Now, that to me speaks of a bit of that sensitivity I was just talking about. In many ways, now that I think about it, we are the husband as a viewer. We are in this emotional contract with the lead actress. And we don't know. We don't know the intricacies of her heart and her thoughts and the film's work is to explore those very tender um, delicate and vulnerable moments this experience she's had with her man now it might be easy just to say oh well their marriage needs a lot of work she needs to open up Uh, they need to have that conversation out in the open with a therapist and get everything sorted out and i would agree but there is a point before that where someone might not even be ready for that where someone might not even be at the level of understanding to where a woman could feel those things just through the happenstance of life and again why I felt so impacted and so drawn in to this film was because of just that there is this beautiful sensitivity to her experience There is no condemnation there, but there is this wonderful sense of understanding her and her journey. Understanding those emotions without putting them down, without deciding right or wrong. And in a way, I think that is the beauty of film at large, film in general, is that it gives us this access where. It moves past our own preconceptions and our own ideas and our own thoughts and notions of what is right and wrong and gives us an insight, a very precious insight. I remember when I would first watch films about about marital transgression and things of this nature back then, um, I looked at it very black and white, coming from a religious Christian background. It was uh, everything outside of marriage is just wrong. Um, not that I don't believe that now, but I think there's more value in understanding what somebody has gone through. The, the peaks and the valleys of that, the, the trusts and the doubts, the fears. Why two would separate To me, there's more value in understanding someone's experience than to be right or wrong. And that's the delicate beauty of this film. That is the, the beautiful language it portrays. And I don't know that there are too many films nowadays that care to do that, care to have that insight, care to have the objective view on life, if you will, and maybe not objective, I guess that's a little bit too loaded to use these days as well, but um, to have the capacity to stand back and look at an experience with understanding, with love, with care for that person and their own experience and feelings. Oh, Chip Chip Cherry O. Sport of sir. Oh, lovely. This has been another episode of The Prairie Film Companion. Shot in Edmonton, Alberta. This is episode 3.5 with your humble host, Gerard O. Ramos. Thank you very much for joining. Thank you for listening. Pardon this atrocious, British, slightly mixed accent. David Lean, Brief Encounter, 1945. 1945? Okay, yeah, I'll just stop. Sergei Rashmaninov. Goodbye, everybody. Bye.